0: It's time for America Outdoors Radio, the show that covers the outdoor scene across the U.S. of A. and the entire continent. Fishing, hunting, conservation, outdoor recreation, and great destinations, we cover it all every week. It's your country, your outdoors. Let's explore it together with your host, John Cruz.
1: Welcome to the show, September. I do love this month because there's a lot of fun things going on. What kind of fun things? Oh, I don't know. How about dove hunting? Or if you're in some of the prairie states, sharp-tailed grouse hunting. If you're in Alaska, there's all sorts of seasons that are open right now. Everything from big game to waterfowl and more. We've got small game seasons opening up. We've got some rough grouse seasons that are opening up this month. And some early teal seasons along with some youth waterfowl hunts too. And on the fishing side, oh, September is when the fishing gets really good because a lot of anglers, well, they are concentrating on hunting and hanging up their rods for the season. That means the waters are a lot less crowded. The waters are starting to cool and the fish are putting on the feed bag. We're talking everything from trout to walleye to bass and panfish. In September and early October, my opinion, these are some of the best times of the year to be out on the water to catch a whole bunch of fish. As for me, I got to go out for an opening day dove hunt with my son, David, who came over to visit. And while we didn't bring home any birds, it sure was nice to spend a late afternoon and evening with him, who I don't get to see nearly enough anymore. That's the thing about when they grow up. You can't wait for them to leave the house, and you can't wait for them to come back. I also got out bass fishing with my best friend, Rusty Johnston, this week on our favorite lake, Potholes Reservoir in eastern Washington. They lowered the water levels here to do some work on one of the main boat launches, and it's as low as I've ever seen it, some 22 feet below full pool. This should make for some very interesting fishing next weekend when we fish our last bass tournament of the year and hope to bring in a good bag of largemouth and smallmouth to the weigh-in of this small but long-running event called the Old Farts Tournament, where at least one boater has to be over 40 years old, and we've made that cut for a long time now. This week on the show, we've got another lineup of great guests for you. This includes Kip Adams, the Chief Conservation Officer for the National Deer Association. He's going to share some tips to help you age that buck you see in the field before you pull the trigger or let that arrow fly and explain why this skill is a very useful one to master. We'll also talk to Kirk Dieter. He's the editor of Trout Magazine and Angling Trade Media, which is all about the business of fly fishing. Kirk is going to share the current state of fly fishing on our streams across America, which, as you probably know, are pretty crowded with both anglers and guides with clients. An answer to this? Not expensive fishing clubs, but instead a company called Rare Waters, operating now in Wyoming and Colorado and expanding across the country fast. This company works with landowners along rivers to provide access to you, the angler, for a price, but the price is pretty affordable. It's an interesting concept, and I think you'll want to hear more about this. Our final guest of the day, that would be John Hoyer, the man who just won the National Walleye Tournament Championship on Lake Erie, bringing home a $129,000 cash and prize package in the process. John's going to share the tactic he used to win this tournament, and it's something you can do on a walleye Lake near you as well. In addition to this, we've got information about the deer archery season opening up this weekend in one of our states, and some advice about catching and keeping a few bass for a shore lunch or dinner the next time you're out on the water. Before we share all this, though, let's talk a little small game hunting. Next on America Outdoors Radio, we've got Jim Coffey on the line. He's a biologist with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. The topic is the rabbit and squirrel season that opened up on September 3rd. Jim, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you, John. Appreciate being on.
1: These are two species that really are overlooked by a lot of hunters, but they're great introductions to hunting, and for that matter, they're just kind of fun to do whether you're an experienced hunter or not, aren't they?
2: They are, and you hit it exactly. They're fun to hunt. They're plentiful game. They're out there. They do offer a lot of skill sets that people have kind of forgotten, and it's our first chance to really get out back hunting in the fall.
1: Well, let's talk about the the cottontail rabbit season that is now open in Iowa. I understand last year 17,000 hunters participated, harvested more than 100,000 cottontail rabbits. How are things looking this year?
2: Yeah, we just finished up our August roadside counts, and, and we've got good rabbit numbers again this year. We expect a good season overall, and again, a very underutilized resource.
1: A lot of folks think you have to have you know, some dogs like beagles to go rabbit hunting, but that's not necessarily the case, is it?
2: It's not, and there, there are several ways to hunt rabbits, and that's obviously one of them, and it's a very fun way to hunt with eagles, but it's something that a single person can do or a couple, three people can do. It's just understanding your quarry and, and how to get after them in a way that's efficient.
1: If you were to give some basic advice to somebody came up and said, I've never hunted rabbits before, what should I look for in terms of habitat? What do you tell them?
2: Yeah, I just tell them to look for really thick stuff. You think about everything wants to eat a rabbit, so a rabbit has to hide in places that things can't get to it. So we think of like our brambles, our raspberry thickets, some of our other uh, dogwood brushes, brush piles, things where rabbits can escape from predators. That's where we want to be looking as well.
1: And in terms of shotguns, you can use everything from a 12-gauge all the way down to a 410 and have success, can't you?
2: You can, and that's very cultural. So a lot of people who hunt rabbits will hunt with the smaller gauges or hunt with, with shotguns in general. But in southern Iowa, where I hunt, a lot of people hunt with 22 rifles.
1: Interesting. And if somebody was to come to Iowa, because uh, most of our listeners are from out of state, specifically to hunt rabbits, what part of the state should they look for? Is there some public land in the area?
2: We have lots of public land available across the state of Iowa, all which would offer good rabbit hunting, and I would encourage anybody that is traveling to Iowa for any species to check out our Iowa DNR Atlas, and it's a basically a, an overview map of all of the public hunting areas and the species that are available on those areas to hunt.
1: Let's talk about the other small game species that is open squirrel hunting. Again, last year you had over 17,000 squirrel hunters that harvested some 103,000 squirrels. What kind of squirrels do you have in Iowa?
2: So we have two tree squirrels that we can hunt. We have the gray squirrel and the fox squirrel. We also have two other tree squirrels that are protected, the red squirrel and the flying squirrel. So those seasons are closed for those species. But the gray squirrel and the fox squirrel are the traditional species that we hunt, and they have different habitats. Even though they do overlap with each other, they can be found throughout the entire state, and they provide lots of opportunity.
1: And daily bag limit of six squirrels, so definitely... a uh A good afternoon or morning going after them. Actually, what is the best time of day to go squirrel hunting? It
2: kind of depends on the season. So right now, as the nuts are on, the mass crop is on, you can get the squirrels. They'll be out early in the morning because it's still a little warm here. So they like to get out in the cool part of the day. It gets a little hot. They don't move through the trees quite as much. And then as the leaves come off, they'll be down on the ground more, obviously picking up those nuts that have now fallen down to the ground. So I like to hunt early mornings and late afternoons when it's warm out because that's the cool times of the day. And then as it gets cooler, you can hunt pretty much any time of the day and the squirrels are going to be
1: active. And just like rabbit hunting, this is one you can do either with a twenty two or with a shotgun, isn't it?
2: Very much so. And again, very traditional. We have those people that grew up only using shotguns, and then we have those people like myself that only use twenty twos. It's a very unique sport. It offers a lot of the same woodsmanship skills as, let's say, spring turkey hunting. You have to know where the squirrels are going to be at. They're very wary of your movements, so you've got to watch your movements, and you've got to use some really good skills
1: and increase your skills. The hunter to, to get squirrels and plus if you get some squirrels you can always send the tails to meps lures they still have a program where they'll
2: they'll go ahead right. and give
1: you something for those how do you like to yep. cook up squirrels
2: so i i like them two ways obviously i like the traditional fried squirrel but i like squirrel biscuits and gravy and well squirrel stew are three ways that i really like to eat squirrels
1: sounds pretty darn tasty to me what's the website folks should go to to find out more about small game hunting in iowa
2: Yeah, the best place to check anything out for hunting in Iowa is iowadnr.gov.
1: Easy enough, folks. iowadnr.gov. Head on over to Iowa and go squirrel hunting, go rabbit hunting. It's going to be all sorts of fun. Jim, thanks for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio.
2: Thank you, John.
1: We've been telling you about Sportsman's Cove Lodge in southeast Alaska for a while now, and there's a reason. They are the only Alaska lodge we talk about on this show. It's because they're truly Alaska's best lodge. The adventure starts with a float plane ride from Ketchikan, after which you'll get the chance to experience some of the best hospitality, food, and wonderful people you'll ever meet. Wildlife is abundant, from bears and deer to eagles and whales, and let's not forget the reason you're here, the fishing, halibut, salmon, lingcod, rockfish, true cod, and more. It's all waiting for you in abundance at Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Book your trip today at alaskasbestlodge.com. That's alaskasbestlodge.com for Sportsman's Cove Lodge.
0: Ready to step up to a quality-built rifle or shotgun that's a true classic? Check out Henry Repeating Arms, American-made. There's over 200 models to choose from in a variety of finishes and calibers for hunters and target shooters. Many of these are lever-action models with a look right out of the Old West. Don't be deceived, though. Henry Repeating Arms are modern, rugged, accurate, reliable, and have a lifetime guarantee. Find out more and order a free catalog today at henryusa.com. That's henryusa.com. In today's news, I'm cooking a brisket. Let's go to Jill at my house to see how it's going.
1: This is your house and you brought me and the crew to check on your brisket?
0: That's correct, Jill. How's it looking?
1: This is a Camp Chef Woodwind Wi-Fi. You know you you can check your cook right from your phone, right?
0: I didn't know that was an option, Jill. Well, never mind. But before you leave, can you feed the dog? What? No, no. When we get back, why is my check engine light on? The answer may shock me.
1: You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Let's talk a little bit about deer and deer hunting. And the person we're going to talk to is Kip Adams. He's the Chief Conservation Officer for the National Deer Association. He helped put together a great video on their YouTube channel that is all about learning how to age that deer you see in the field. Kip, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, John. I'm glad to be here. So why is it important to be able to figure out how old that buck is in the field before you pull the trigger?
3: Well, it's not absolutely crucial to, to, to be able to do that to-go hunting, but for an increasing number of hunters, it's just a whole lot of fun, and it adds another level of understanding of deer and deer behavior, So, and we get all the questions throughout the year from hunters on, hey, how old do you think this buck is? So being an, an organization that provides a lot of educational materials, we created this video One, to help teach people more about deer. Two, you know, to help them have a little more fun when they're out there hunting. And just to maybe increase the appreciation that folks have for white tails to be able to estimate, is that deer more likely one, two, three, uh, four or five years old?
1: Well, a lot of folks would just say, well, hey, it's just all about the antlers, isn't it? We would respond with, not at all.
3: Certainly, if somebody is is hunting and it makes no difference to them whatsoever how old the deer is, as long as it's a legal deer, we say, go ahead and shoot, you know, and congratulations on that. And uh, thanks for being a hunter. But if people want to try to estimate how old deer are or learn a little more about their behavior, then uh, we like to provide that information. So we do that using body characteristics rather than antler characteristics because you, you can't estimate age based on antlers, at least not anything other than, yeah, it's probably one or it's probably five. You can get a lot closer
1: to a specific age estimate if you look at body characteristics. All right. Well, let's talk about some of those characteristics. And I guess we'll start off with comparing a yearling to an adult buck. What are some of the differences? Sure. And you know, the things that we look at in any age class, John, we
3: look at, how long the legs are relative to how deep the body is, how heavy is the musculature in the neck and the shoulders, how big is the waist as opposed to how tight is the waist. Those are the, the body characteristics we're looking at because as as bucks age, they go through body changes just like humans. So those are what we're looking for. Best time of the year to do this is in the fall because that's when bucks attain their largest body size. So Young versus older deer, basically a yearling or a one-and-a-half-year-old deer, it essentially looks like a doe with antlers. It's put almost all of its body growth just into getting as tall as it can. So it's very lean. It's very lanky. Uh, the hindquarters tend to be larger than the front end. They have a very small neck. And if you cover the antlers, they essentially look like a doe. Now, other end of that spectrum, a very mature animal, one that you know is is five-and-a-half now, his legs tend to look short for his body. And it's not that his legs have actually gone shorter; it's just his body has developed you know, so so much deeper that there's just not as much room between the bottom of the stomach and the ground. So legs appear short. He has tremendous swelling in his neck during the rut. Big, heavy shoulders. You know, really muscled. He has a waist that's very full, and in many cases has dropped down and is even with his chest. They often have a, a sagging belly. And have a bit of a sway back, so they are just like at the peak of maturity, peak body size, so completely the other end of the spectrum from uh, what they looked like back when they were just one and a half.
1: Well, I think you just aged me as a mature buck as well with that description. (laughs) 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 Let's talk about people who maybe lease land or own it, and they want to manage their herd so that they have the, the healthiest ratio of deer. You know, when it comes to age classes, whether it's the yearlings or the adult bucks or the mature bucks, which deer need the most protection and least harvest you know what we, what we help teach people is hey let, let's manage deer herds
3: if possible so that they have very natural age structures so if you look at deer herds that aren't hunted today they have deer in all age class they have more one and a half year olds than anything else but they also have bucks that are two and a half three and a half four and a half five and a half six and a half and, and even older so as managers you know Even if you don't care to kill a really old buck, you should at least care that there are some there so that deer herds can act the way they've evolved, you know, the way their social order works. So, to do that, the best ones to protect are just uh, the majority of that one and a half year old age class. You don't have to protect all of those, but if you protect the majority of them, and that can be 51, 52, you know, 55 percent, if you just protect the majority of them, they will then slip through and become two-year-olds, and you can go ahead and start shooting at two-and-a-half if you want, because what happens, John, is they become a little smarter, so we won't get all the two-year-olds, so some will become three, some will become four, some will become five, and what you end up with then is you have a very balanced age structure, a very natural age structure, and that's really good for the deer herd, and that's great for us as hunters and whitetail enthusiasts.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the organization you work for, the National Deer Association. What's its mission? What's its purpose? We're a national nonprofit
3: wildlife conservation organization with a mission to ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. We work with hunters. We work with landowners. We work with state and federal wildlife agencies across the United States to provide information about deer, to help teach people more about deer, help promote some of the state wildlife agency programs. We work a lot with uh, disease issues and that. Basically, we just want to make sure that we have really healthy deer populations and that hunters have the ability to go afield
1: and pursue them. Historically speaking, it seems that deer populations are doing quite well. I mean, when you look back at the early 1900s when the whitetail was almost extinct, what is the outlook for deer in the future, do you think? I mean, are we dealing with issues like chronic wasting disease and some of these other Outbreaks, these hemorrhagic diseases that are going to threaten the long-term survival of the species, or are things looking pretty good? Well, there's certainly uh, big disease issues, chronic wasting disease being the biggest. Hemorrhagic disease, we're actually
3: having a pretty bad year right now in in many states. But the thing about hemorrhagic disease is, you know, that's not forever. Deer herds can recover very quickly. CWD is very different. But overall, deer herds are pretty healthy today. We have very strong numbers of deer, we have better age structure in our buck and doe populations than we've had in at least the last 100 years. So we have hunters reaping the benefits of you know of lots of deer afield and opportunities to hunt older bucks. We publish an annual deer report where we collect information from every state wildlife agency and include in there you know the numbers of deer that were shot, bucks and does, uh, the age structure. So we monitor all of those statistics, all that stuff available as a free download on our website. But... From that, we know very clearly about the numbers of whitetails we have in the United States today and how healthy they are, and certainly there's deer herds in certain places, you know, that are hurting a little bit, but overall, deer herds are doing very, very well. So that's why we have to stay ahead of the CWD issue to ensure that that continues well into the
1: future. Last question. If folks want to support the National Deer Association, how can they do so? They can go right to our website, which is deerassociation.com.
3: They can be well-versed knowing that nobody fights harder for deer hunters uh, than we do. And those deer reports that I mentioned, those are all free downloads on there if they'd like to, to grab that and see how their state compares to their neighbors or states in other parts of the country.
1: All right, that's DeerAssociation.com. That's the website for the National Deer Association. Check it out and check out the great YouTube video they've got on aging deer. You'll probably learn a few things along the way. Kip, thanks so much for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. My
3: pleasure, John. You have a great day.
1: This portion of the show is brought to you by our friends at WorkSharp. And if you are hunting this fall, you know the importance of a sharp knife. You're going to need it for gutting that animal, butchering that animal, taking the hide off that animal, and there's a good chance you're going to have to sharpen it more than once while you're doing these things in the field. That's why a pocket knife sharpener or the guided field sharpener from WorkSharp are great items to have with you. Whether you're after deer, elk, pronghorn, or bear... A sharp knife helps you get things done after you drop that animal. Look for WorkSharp products at sporting goods stores, hardware stores, and ranch and home stores near you, or online at WorkSharpTools.com. That's WorkSharpTools.com.
0: Hunt of a Lifetime is a nationwide nonprofit organization
1: You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our next stop is the great state of Colorado. That's where we find Kirk Dieter. He is the editor for Trout Magazine and for Angling Trade that is all about the industry of fly fishing. Kirk, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks a lot for having me. So you wrote a really interesting article about the current state of fly fishing and about a company that is trying something new called Rare Waters. And and this really spoke to me because uh, I think a lot of not just fly fishermen, but trout anglers in general who fish streams all through the United States can relate to this. Let's talk about the present situation on rivers for trout anglers trying to have a quality day on the water in this day and age where COVID has brought out hordes of new anglers that we have not seen before.
4: Yes, well I tell you what, it's it's kind of a good thing, bad thing. It's great in that there are a lot of people who have discovered fishing and are out on the rivers and enjoying themselves, and especially families, that's just balm to the soul. I love seeing that. But we also have had a lot of angler pressure and a lot of businesses, guides, others are out there on the rivers all the time, and people are feeling the squeeze literally, and the fish are feeling the squeeze. So I think it's something that we all really wrestle with. We don't want to discourage from people from getting out on the water or fishing by any stretch of the imagination. But You know, we have to also realize that angling pressure is in and of itself a conservation concern.
1: You know, in your article, I mean, you you mentioned some of the problems we're seeing. We're seeing a a lot of people who are low-holing, going right below where you're fishing instead of behind you and (laughs) following you down the run. Uh, You talk about trash. You talk about literally crap that you're seeing at the public access areas. And just the armada of guide boats on streams like the Madison and others where— you're right. The, the pressure is just enormous. It really takes away from that relaxing day on the water.
4: It does. And I mean, I've heard even stories about hours plus waits to pull boats out at boat ramps on rivers like the Madison. I mean, that's just not the root of what we're all about or what a lot of anglers want to experience. And, you know, some folks think that that's just fine and that's cool, whatever floats your boat, I guess. But uh, I think that we're looking for different solutions, too.
1: Well, I know one solution that is out there is the emergence of private fishing clubs, whether they be at lakes or streams that are fenced off. But these kind of speak towards the ultra-rich and kind of leave the blue-collar guy out, don't they?
4: They do, and it can be very expensive. It's like joining a, a golf club or something. It can cost tens of thousands of dollars sometimes. And even sometimes the the resorts that you can go to, they'll you know, cost several thousand dollars to fish for a weekend. So good for the folks who can do that, but most of us can't.
1: Most of us cannot. <laughs> yeah. And as you point out in the article, the, the days of going up to the farmer's or rancher's house and knocking on the door and asking for permission to fish there, those days are gone because they know they can lease their land.
4: Sure. They know the opportunities and who's to blame them for that. I think that that's great. So good for them and it keeps some of these finding the right way to to monetize what they've got with their river access as a way for a lot of these families to keep those ranches
1: in the family and i guess that's where this new company rare waters comes in why don't you tell our listeners what this is all about
4: Yeah, River Waters is a company that I started covering a couple years ago and actually gave some advice to. And and I think that their goal is to open opportunities, not really to build fences around rivers, but in areas, states where the, the stream access laws mean that the rancher owns or the landowner owns the river property as well as the land around it. They can broker the deal that opens that property that would otherwise be closed. This is not Taking public land and putting it into a private club situation, this is taking something that private the anglers can't get to, and then opening access to that and yeah, it costs a little bit of a fee, but we're talking a couple hundred bucks or sometimes even less than that to go out and fish for the day, which you know some people can do, and I think that that's something worth looking at.
1: Well, it's cheaper than hiring a guide. You're right about that. And for all of us who love do-it-yourself fishing, this is definitely an option to access waters that otherwise would be cut off. And I guess we need to to talk about the fact that different states have different rules when it comes to stream access. So in Montana, for example, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if you can find a public right-of-way, like perhaps a bridge on a county road and get down to the you know, below the high water mark, you can walk as far as you want. And I think that's the way it is in Washington and Oregon as well. But that's not the way it is in Colorado where you live, is it?
4: No, it's not. Although the stream access laws are being challenged and it has been for a long time. It's it's you know fluid, pun intended situation, right? But as it stands now, the landowner owns the bottom of the river and has every right to keep that private. So, you know, whether you like it or not It is what it is. And so in those situations, we're trying to find solutions that change it to at least afford a little more access to people who want to just fish.
1: So why don't you tell me a little bit more about how a day fishing on property with Rare Waters works out? Well, you sign up with the company, you go to
4: rarewaters.com, and then you can look at the menu of different places that they offer and sign up for the fee, uh, which ranges anywhere from, starts at 125 bucks. A rod and goes up a little bit from there, and you can sign up, and then you go to the spot and fish. And the beauty is, is that you don't have. I mean, I love fishing guides. Don't get me wrong, I love going on guide trips, but those can be several hundred dollars as well. And if you're a good angler and you don't necessarily want someone chirping in your ear the whole day, <laughs> um, and you like the, you know, you like the solitude and making your own decisions, and you don't really care if you catch as many fish as you you need to. Just being out there is the experience.
1: That's kind of a neat, a neat way to go. sounds like a great way to go now is rare waters is this company just operating in Colorado or are they in other states too? They're in
4: Colorado and Wyoming, and they're starting to expand elsewhere. I think their goal is pretty ambitious. They've got dozens of properties now, and I think their goal is within three years to have as many as 500 different properties. I do want to
1: clarify this. So this is not a situation where they are going to a landowner and saying, put up a fence, and then we're going to go ahead and, and charge access for it. This is a situation where they're going to landowners who may already have fences there, or at least no trespassing signs, and they're working with them to open up access to the public for a price.
4: That's right. That's as I understand it as well. You know, I'm not a, you know, one of the members of the company. I cover them, and I do give them some advice here and there. And that's what my advice has been all along. You know, I think that it's awful to take away public access or take away public right and fence things off for the sake of profit, I think is the last direction that we want to go. It's really a fine line, right? It's something that you have to look very carefully at and assess on a case-by-case basis. But in these cases, I think that they're opening access, and I think that's a good thing.
1: All right. The website, again, rarewaters.com. That's rarewaters.com if you want to check out what they have to offer and maybe go ahead and reserve a day to go fishing on some private property that you wouldn't be able to access otherwise. We've got about a minute left. Tell our listeners about Angling Trade Media and the website, folks, anglingtrade.com. What are folks going to find there? You're gonna find a lot about the business of fly
4: fishing. Sometimes you don't maybe don't want to know how the sausage gets made, but sometimes you find that pretty (laughs) interesting. We do a lot of product reviews. If you're looking for a new rod and or reel or waders, we give you the straight scoop, honest. It's not the promo speak. And then we also have an extension called FlyFishingJobs.com. So if anyone goes to that site, you can see if you're interested in having a job that matches you in the fly fishing industry. We put people with the dream jobs that they always wanted to have.
1: Well, if you're a fly angler, definitely a website to check out. Again, anglingtrade.com for Angling Trade Media. And as you just heard, there's some pretty interesting articles there too. Kirk, thanks for sharing this one with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Thank you. Earlier in the show, we were talking about squirrel and rabbit hunting, which sounds like all sorts of fun, a great way to kick off the hunting season. And if you want to give it a go, you'll want to have the right firearm. And that's where a firearm from Henry Repeating Arms comes into play. They've got several rimfire twenty-two caliber rifles to choose from, as well as lever action and single shot for 10 gauge shotguns, too. Perfect for bunnies and for squirrels. All of them are made in America. They're all rugged, reliable. They shoot straight right out of the box, and they come with a lifetime satisfaction guarantee. Check out the models available and look for a dealer near you at HenryUSA.com. That's HenryUSA.com, and don't forget to ask for your free decals and catalog while you're there.
0: hunters and anglers. You may have heard of us, but what are we about? BHA is the voice for your wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. From national level policy work to boots on the ground projects like public land cleanups, we work across North America to uphold the legacy of our public lands and waters, as well as your opportunity to hunt, fish, and recreate on them. Stand up for public lands and waters and become a BHA member today. Visit backcountryhunters.org.
1: Sportsman's Cove Lodge in southeast Alaska is booked for the season, which means now is the time to book for next year. And you'll want to do so soon because at the end of a typical summer, the lodge is over 80% booked. The reasons? The great fishing, the wonderful location, the comfortable accommodations, the fantastic food, and the over-the-top customer service. You'll find it all at Sportsman's Cove Lodge, booked today at alaskasbestlodge.com.
0: Hunting and fishing are exercises in hope. Before you head into the woods, you hope to tag out on a deer you'll have to field dress. Before you make that first cast, you hope for a big fish to clean and fillet. When your hopes are realized, you'll need a sharp knife. Whether you sharpen that blade on a power sharpener in the shop or a manual sharpener in the field, Sharp has the tool for you. Look for WorkSharp products in sporting goods stores near you or online at WorkSharpTools.com.
1: you back in with America Outdoors Radio, and our next guest today is John Hoyer. He's the man who just won the National Walleye Tour Championship out at Lake Erie. John, congratulations. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, John. Well, I'll tell you what, absolutely dominating performance three-day tournament you came in with over 102 pounds of walleye over the three days, beat the next closest competitor by, oh, just 11 pounds or so. How'd you do it?
5: I did it in a way that I could have only dreamt of doing it on Lake Erie. It was a pattern that my friends and I kind of haphazardly developed a few years ago on Lake Malax, and it was kind of a post-spawn time of year, you know, in the spring, and when we started catching fish doing it, it was literally there was a huge asterisk because it's Lake Malax. you know, the last ten years they've been lacking forage and they'd basically bite a piece of cardboard there, you know, in that post spawn period. So it took only a couple months for me to actually put it into action on the national walleye tour and that was two thousand nineteen at Sault Ste. Marie. And I actually took second place in that tournament. I got beat by like fifteen pounds, but I had the rest of the field by like twelve or thirteen pounds, so that year was an unbelievable year for me, and that was a second place, and I actually had two wins, but if people asked me, you know, what was your defining moment for the year, I would point to that tournament, that tournament I took second in, because it was just something that was my own, and it had so much thought put into it and why it works, and then to be able to, you know, execute on the National walleye Tour and, you know, almost win... It really was just a special feeling. So I knew that at some point in the next however many years, it would line up where I'd be able to find, you know, tourney grade fish in the weed beds on the Great Lakes and be able to utilize that technique. So I didn't know it would happen this fast, you know, in essence two years later or whatever, and I didn't know it would be such a blowout when we figured it out, but lo and behold, it happened. Are you still, are you willing to share what this technique
1: is or do you still need to keep this secret edge out the competition?
5: No, I don't need to keep it a secret at all. And the funny part is, you know, that was televised, that second-place finish at the National Walleye Tour. You know, it made a pretty good buzz, but inevitably there's just a certain amount of reach, you know, that National Walleye Tour gets or I do on my social media. And then, I mean, I went ahead and did two Next Bite TV episodes doing it, one on Lake Mille Lacs originally. That's when we first figured it out. And then uh, one on Fort Peck, so Missouri River Reservoir, Natural Lake in Minnesota. Like if somebody showed me that, I would have done the math myself and tried to use it on the Great Lakes, but apparently that didn't stick. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, people kind of forgot about it and I'll never forget it. I always have the same rod tied up in my boat and it's always something that I try, you know, if I'm around weeds. So it's cool. It's, it's shallow water. So eight to 12 foot, but I'm using a three quarter ounce jig head. And I'm not just swimming the thing through the weeds. What I'm doing is I throw it out, I let it hit bottom, and I literally, I put a little slack in my line. And it's basically like as hard as you can set the hook. So I set the hook and that does a couple things. It clears any of the weeds that I got to go through. So my bait's perfectly clean. And then after I snap it like that, you know, it's a huge visual attractant of, you know, a perch shooting up to the surface. And then I basically, I just follow it down in a little semi-slack line, letting that bait fall as fast as it can. And it literally falls straight down, you know, probably three feet per second or four feet per second, being that heavy. So yeah, when we first did it on Mille Lacs, the number one thing that caught my attention was A, how fast this thing's falling, but B, every walleye that bites that jig, moving that fast, it's literally in the back of their throat you never catch them anywhere around their lips. It is completely choked in the back of their throat. So as a multi-species angler, I mean, anytime you see a lure and a fish that committed to it, you know you got, you know, the right color, the right speed. Everything's perfect if they're that sold on it. So so I get goosebumps even talking about it, but (laughs) it literally, the hardest walleye bite you'll ever feel in your life is when they hit that thing. And they always hit it on the free fall, you know, as that bait's plummeting to bottom.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be trying that, I think a lot of our listeners are too. Got to ask, what's your preferred tackle that you like to use?
5: Yeah, so it's it's basically, I mean, if a guy had a, a bass flipping rod and a baitcaster, that would be perfect. You know, I had to buy a heavier tackle, and a lot of that is because of the hook. So the setup is simple, it's jungle fishing, but it's a medium-heavy spinning rod, Fenwick World Class. It's a 7-footer, and then I use a 30-size Abu Garcia MGX, and spooled up with 10-pound Berkeley Fireline. And then a 15-pound leader is my go-to. It really kind of slices nicely through the weeds. But if there's like a ton of pike involved, I'll go all the way up to maybe even a 30-pound fluorocarbon leader just for the abrasion resistance because it attracts pike like crazy. The only problem is, you know, old scissor bill, they have it just (laughs) as deep as the walleyes. And you, you snap it so hard that you know, regardless of if you felt them bite or if they slacklined you, your hook set literally is like an absolute scissor sensation. So you'll go through some jigs if it's infested with pike. But otherwise, that 15-pound leader is all you need. I tie a double uni knot, and I've used the other knots and stuff, but, you know, any of those daintier finesse knots, like an FG, any of those fancy bass knots, I really just have learned I can't trust that knot. Casting that really heavy, you know, jig through my guide's hundreds of times a day and then snapping it that hard. It gets beat up a little bit. So double uni is the joiner nut.
1: Well, thank you for sharing your secrets with us. Uh, like I said, uh, this sounds like a great technique. I think a lot of us are going to put it to use. it certainly worked for you. You won over $33,000 and a brand new Ranger S21 FS with a Mercury 300 outboard. That is amazing. So total prize package, 129000 and change. Congratulations to you, John, for winning the National Walleye Tour out at Lake Erie. And thanks for sharing this with us today.
5: On America Outdoors Radio. You bet. Thanks for having me and I will give one warning. That technique is very addicting. Like you'll find yourself burning hours and that's the only way you want to get bit but it's also super gratifying. You'll be amazed when you get your first bite. You'll get a picture of how fast that thing's moving and you'll have a new appreciation for what caliber of predator a walleye is. I can't wait to try it out.
1: In other news, Georgia's deer archery season begins this weekend, and according to the State Department of Natural Resources Wildlife Division, it is time to start filling the freezer. Last year, 83,000 archery hunters harvested over 44,000 deer in the Peach State. Statewide, hunters can use archery equipment throughout the entire 2022 to 2023 deer season. According to state deer biologist Charlie Killmaster, which by the way, is a great name for a hunter. Archery hunting season is here and bow hunters get the first shot, pun intended. While it may seem too hot to hunt the early part of the archery season, It is an excellent time to pattern deer. Persimmons are a highly prized natural food source during the early season, but don't overlook the trails between good cover and a food source to locate mature bucks. In terms of public hunting opportunities, the Georgia Wildlife Resources Division operates more than 100 public wildlife management areas, and hunters can find additional hunting properties on voluntary public access or VPA properties. These are properties available thanks to a USDA grant, that allows for the arrangement of a temporary agreement with private landowners for public hunting opportunities. You can find out more information at GeorgiaWildlife.com slash VPA-HIP. If you're wondering what other states are currently open for archery deer hunting, check out Kentucky and out west. Washington, Oregon, and California all have archery deer seasons going on right now, and many other states are opening up later this month. So check your state regulations to find out when you can take that bow out to harvest a deer. Moving on to bass. Have you ever considered them for a shore lunch? When you think shore lunch, you probably think of fish like walleye and trout, but bass, both largemouth and smallmouth, are an option too. Now, most of us bass anglers practice catch and release, but you can eat a few bass and not harm the fishery at all. The Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation just wrote a blog on this very topic. They recommend harvesting 8- to 15-inch largemouth bass, especially at lakes with an overabundance of them bass in this size range are best to eat for a number of reasons. First, it helps to sustain a healthy size structure in the body of water through less competition, meaning more food to go around for those fish. Second, Fish continue to grow for their entire life, but grow the fastest in the first few years. Eating fish under 16 inches means that the fish has had less time to accumulate elements like mercury in their meat than can pose health hazards to humans. Third, smaller fish tend to have better tasting meat with a more desirable firm texture. Older, larger fish tend to have a fishier taste and mushier texture. 8 to 15 inch bass fillets are perfect for fried strips or bites. They also sear well in a pan for fish tacos. Whole fillets can be lightly seasoned and buttered and browned on the grill or wrapped in foil for a healthier option. So cook yourself up a few bass the next time you head out onto the water for lunch or dinner and bon appetit. On that note, we've got to wrap things up this week. Here's hoping you are blessed in the days ahead and healthy too. And here's hoping you get outside to enjoy some of what September has to offer. Until next time, remember this, it is your country and your outdoors. So get out there and enjoy it. (laughs)